Well, good morning. I'm glad to see you all here. Uh, we're going to be reading one verse this morning as we continue on our study of the Beatitudes. It's Matthew 5, verse 6. Before I get there, just let me say a couple of thank yous. Um, Nancy Merrifield passed uh, suddenly on uh, Tuesday morning. We'd been praying for her. We had just had a, a party to encourage her in her battle for cancer last Saturday, and then uh, she, she went kind of fast this week. And I wanted to thank our deacons team and our worship team for the fast turnaround and just for the above and beyond kind of output that you all gave yesterday. It's a, it's a mark of the heart of our church when we can respond that way and stand with a family and stand with friends in the way that happened here yesterday. And some of you don't see all the ministry that goes on beyond Sunday mornings, but at these times there are there are moments when the heart of North River just kind of rises up, and yesterday was one of those days. And I just want you to know I was blessed by what you all gave and what you all did uh, yesterday here. Uh, just a quick mention, this Thursday and Friday is the 2021 Global Leadership Summit, and North River is one of more than 500 host sites across the country, so this is sort of your last shout-out if you've been thinking about maybe you'd like to come or maybe you'd clear out the time. And I'd let you know as well, if, if you, uh, taking the time off to be here on Thursday and Friday is an issue, this year they're doing something different. When you buy a ticket, uh, you also get, I think it's an eight- or nine-day pass to watch it visually so that even if you can only come for part of it, you can watch the rest of it at home later. And there's information that comes with the with the ticket that you purchase when you uh, get that online. Anyway, the code you need is 21HSFAMILY. You can find that on the North River events page on our website, and we'd love to have you be a part of that. We're looking forward to a great day. This is Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. God, I ask that you would grant us insight into this concept of righteousness and what it means to be filled with your righteousness. We come here for a variety of reasons on a day like this. Some because it's our habit and we wouldn't think of going anywhere else, and this is the way we start our week. But I know that there are probably some people who were singing that last song with me. And we get to those lines, I need you, I need you, Lord, that all of a sudden this gets very personal. Because you know what's just beneath the veneer that we put on our faces and that we cover up our emotions with when we walk into a gathering like this. You know the folks who are going through some personal crisis that they never wanted to be entering. You know those who are dealing with tremendous grief and loss. You know those folks who are struggling at work and maybe barely holding on, or those who are trying to find work and are finding that the doors are closing. And Lord, there are a whole lot of reasons why we cry out from different times, I need you, Lord. I need you, Lord. I need you, Lord. And we pray that you will meet us in this place and that you will fill us in a spiritual way so fully and so profoundly that it carries us through the challenges and the difficulties that regularly come up in life and that many are carrying today. We pray that we will know your strength, that we will know your grace, that we will come to understand something more of the way you've communicated truth to us through your word, 
We pray that you will make us stronger, stronger in, in spirit, stronger in soul, that, that we can stand no matter if the, the challenges, the, the failing of the body as we age or the lack of knowledge as we're on the, the entering side of things. Whatever it is, Lord, we pray that you will reach us and reach out to us by your Spirit today. And that by the time we leave here, and by the time we've celebrated communion, communion together, that you will have given us a profound sense of a refilling charge for the week ahead. In Jesus' name, amen. Old songs have a way of claiming space and sticking in our brains. I don't know if you've noticed that. That's true for secular songs. It's also true from the songs that we hear in church. There's one old hymn from my boyhood that we used to sing in the, the church that I grew up in that went this way. There shall be showers of blessing. This is the promise of love. There shall be seasons refreshing sent from the Savior above. And then the chorus added this thought, showers of blessing, showers of blessing we need, mercy drops round us are falling, but for the showers we plead. It's that last line that, that kind of rings in the back of my head. So the songwriter is saying, there are these episodes of mercy that seem to break through in our lives every once in a while, called the mercy drops, these little bits of mercy that sometimes fall on you that carry you through the week. But he said there are also seasons of life where God seems to have an outpouring of his blessings on people. And so he ends the chorus by saying, uh, but for the showers we plead. Showers of mercy. Showers of God's blessing. Imagine that. Showers of blessing. We are unusually blessed. When Jesus began the Sermon on the Mount with these eight blessings or eight beatitudes, he was letting us know that God desires to bring blessings into the lives of those who truly love God and follow his ways. Jesus was letting us know that while these may be unusual blessings that differ from conventional thinking, nevertheless, they are available for those who trust in the Lord and who lean into this blessed way. This morning, as we explore the meaning and benefits of this fourth beatitude, I have a question for you. What is your strongest experience with or memory of extreme hunger or thirst? Can you think back to a time when you experienced some kind of extreme hunger or extreme thirst in your life? A few years ago, I listened to the book Endurance. It was about Sir Ernest Shackleton's voyage to the South Pole in the Antarctic summer of 1908 and 1909. This was worldwide big news at the time. Endurance was a ship which became so hopelessly mired in the Antarctic ice that Shackleton's men would have to spend the season there waiting for the eventual thaw to release their ship. But the endurance was also one of the but endurance was also one of the key traits that marked Ernest Shackleton's leadership in those difficult days. The book was mostly about the exceptional leadership on display from Shackleton, who worked tirelessly to provide order and to save the lives of his men through this tremendous ordeal. At one point, Shackleton and three others attempted a rescue mission. They took four ponies to help carry their load, seeking help and provisions from the other side of that southernmost continent. Weeks later, with their ponies dead, 
with their food rations all but gone, they turn back toward their base. In other words, they're going to go back across the ice to their ship without accomplishing their goal. As they made their way back, Shackleton wrote in his journals that much of the time was spent talking about food. With severe food and water deprivation setting in, the men began to have vivid dreams about food. And so as they're walking and they're, they're pushing their way step by step through this icy uh, existence with no more food, they described elaborate feasts, gourmet delights, sumptuous menus. You would have think they were part of the Cardus family. And, and as they staggered along on a journey on foot that lasted 127 days, racked with dysentery in absolute survival mode, their constant conversation centered on food and thoughts of eating. This was true hunger and thirst at its peak. Now, let that sink in for a second. Picture in your mind that awful struggle for survival. And then hear these words from Jesus again. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst, wait for it, for righteousness, for they will be filled. This morning's message is part four of our unusually blessed series, which focuses on these opening statements in the Sermon on the Mount that we know as the Beatitudes. And the question of the day is, what does it mean to hunger and thirst for righteousness? So good morning and welcome to North River Church. We have a lively crowd here at our Pembroke campus this morning, and we want to welcome all those of you who are part of our online community as well. Our online service has become North River's front door ministry during this last year and a half. And so let me say welcome to any of you who may be checking out our service for the first time and you're watching online today. Our hope is that you will keep taking next steps, and that one of those next steps will be to come and join us here when you feel ready, when you feel safe here at North River in Pembroke. But we're glad that you are a part of this experience today. We are all continuing to work our way through these changing times. But you know what? In one way or another, the Lord has been preparing all of us for this time. The more that we know Jesus, the more that we lean into his wisdom, he brings spiritual change into our lives. And so we've been embracing change in a number of ways. We are continually changed people because of the saving and sanctifying work of Jesus in our lives. God never comes near without changing us in some way, moving us toward his goal of making us more like Jesus. If you have thought that coming to church is all about keeping things the same, I've got news for you. You have never been on the plan with God. He is always changing us, always wanting to bring out the best in us and bring the best to us and the best for us. And part of that is he wants to change us from the inside out to be more and more like Jesus. That ties in very neatly with our vision here at North River. In fact, I wonder if you would say a simple prayer with me right now. Spirit of the living God, have your way in me. Would you say that with me? Spirit of the living God, have your way in me. Now, our vision statement at North River is this. People being forever changed by God's love and daily changing the south shore and beyond for Jesus. I have news for you. Our God does not want to leave the world around us the same way that it is right now. And he uses us in that process. Today we're going to talk about the, the hunger and thirst that we want. We just sang a few moments ago, there's a hunger and there's a thirst. 
And it's connected to this whole notion of needing God. And my first question, I'm going to build this message around three questions. The first question is, can hunger and thirst be a good thing? What do you think? Yes or no? Can it be? Okay. Two years ago, in early July, I climbed a small mountain in Colorado. I'd been out in Denver for two weeks for some classes. And the last couple of times I'd gone out for classes, I jumped on a plane on Friday night and did an all-night flight home and realized, by the time I get home, I'm completely beat up. The planes are late anyway, and so it just becomes this massive ordeal. So I decided this time I would build in an extra day to do something fun. Um, I'm here just within eyesight of the mountain, so I decided that I would climb a, a small mountain. And a friend and I climbed Carpenter Peak, which is in Roxborough State Park. This was not one of those 14,000-foot peaks. I don't want you to think I'm going to embellish this. Um, but it would take us up to 7,200 feet. And that, that's a bit taxing when we exist here on sea level and we're not used to that kind of altitude. As we climbed up Carpenter Peak early in the morning, there were three of us, but a combination of the dry heat and some physical problems caused one of my friends to turn back early. I started to think, oh, maybe this is going to be harder than I thought. The All Trails app claims that this is a moderate trail, but the day hikes near Denver site lists this as, quote, a strenuous trail because sections of it are extremely rocky and steep. I think both descriptions were true for different sections of the same trail. I think that the guy who wrote the first description only went partway up and never got to the top. On that day, I was wearing a Red Sox cap and a, and a Red Sox shirt, and it led to several great conversations with other hikers who've all spent time in Boston. But the real challenge that day was not the elevation. It was the dry heat. It was 93 degrees that day, and so I carried a backpack with extra water, and we needed every drop. The hike was 3.1 miles up, 3.1 miles back, and all of it in this directly intense July Colorado heat with no shade whatsoever. On the way down, I started to long for something more to drink. It was just about all that I could think about. And when we got to the bottom of the trail, I quickly purchased a cold Gatorade to respond to that incredible sensation of thirst that was welling up. And my thirst was so great, and my, my deprivation or water loss was so great, that I had to sit for about 20 minutes just to regain my sense of balance. I found out later that I'd lost nearly 10 pounds in water weight that morning. In a situation like that, thirst is calling attention to physical dangers. Now, was that a bad thing or a good thing? Well, on the one hand, that kind of thirst and entering into that kind of water loss can be a bad thing. But on the other hand, it's, it's calling out that you have to pay attention to this. You have to replenish. So the sensation of thirst was actually a good thing, right? I think so. He was telling me, you need to stop. You need to somehow take in more fluid. Now think about Jesus' statement here. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. It becomes obvious that Jesus was using the concept of hunger and thirst in a different way than the way that I was just using it a moment ago. Rather than talking about the physical sensation, Jesus was referring to a relentless obsession that is similar to the physical experience we have when the body is de depleted of water or food in a significant way. In this case, that hunger and thirst is a relentless desire for righteousness. This hunger is like the craving that a starving person has for food. And it is like the kind of thirst that a mere sip cannot possibly quench. 
And now that hunger and thirst cannot be quenched by anything but the righteousness of God. David and the psalm writers describe this kind of hunger and thirst for God a number of times in the psalm. Psalm 4 verses 1 and 2 says, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go and meet with God? In Psalm 63, the psalm says, O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my body longs for you. You get this sense of a spiritual ache that the psalm writer is writing about. This is intense. Psalm 84 says, My soul yearns, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Psalm 143, verse 6. I spread out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. Have you ever been out in the western part of our country where the desert hits and the land is so parched and you realize that a drop of water is going to do nothing? It would take a river of water to somehow replenish that area and, and produce something uh, that, that has a growable surface. Like a parched land, my soul longs for you and thirsts for you, the psalm writer says. So Jesus is describing something that God honors within us when there is this tremendous spiritual hunger and thirst, but he's pushing that in a direction. So the second question is, what is righteousness? Now, those of you who've been around church for a while may think, oh, that's easy to answer. And yet the more that you look at the biblical content, it's initially easy to answer, it's hard to describe fully because it's a very profound concept. The concept of righteousness was at the center of Jesus' teaching. Matthew 6, he says, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. At its core concept, it refers to being in right standing with God on a number of levels. But the concept of righteousness also has a rich and somewhat diverse background. The uses of righteousness in the Bible and ancient literature is so rich that some, it is something of a mystery to us, the kind of concept that biblical scholars write doctoral dissertations about. So don't get afraid here. I'm not going down that trail. Uh, we don't have time to, to do all that this morning. Yet we have to recognize this is a profound, large, big concept. And yet we can't skip it either because it was central to the teaching of Jesus. When a topic like this is complex, it helps us to look at other biblical references. So let's just consider a few. A little bit later on in this same section of the Beatitudes, Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. So as we end this series, we're going to focus on that one. This speaks of a righteousness that distinguishes Christians from the rest of the world and may at times even invite opposition because of our allegiance to the way of Jesus when it runs contrary to the pathway of the world. And Jesus is saying, if you really want to be blessed, we have to embrace that kind of mindset at some point. And we don't just march along with the crowd blindly. How about this one? Matthew 5.20. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Oh, 
Jesus was contrasting the system of religious rules that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law had built into the first century from the internal spiritual changes that are brought about by the Holy Spirit. He's calling for a different kind of righteousness, a righteousness that surpasses, not meaning more and more rules and lists and regulations, but more and more true righteousness that wells up within us. Here's another one from Jesus, Matthew 6.1. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men. In other words, he's saying, when you do things that are good in this world and you're doing them for the sake of righteousness and the sake of honoring the Lord, don't go around blowing trumpets in order to draw everyone else's attention to what you're doing. In fact, do most of it in quietness, if you can, and in, in, in obscurity, if you can, because the Lord will reward he says it as well, if we do it to receive rewards from other people, well, that's all you get. That's it. But true righteousness, the kind of righteousness he desires to, to produce in us, prompts us to do things that other people will never recognize, may never appreciate in this world, may never thank you for. But we do them because it's right. We do them because God honors those acts. See how complex this is? Brian Bill, a pastor from Illinois whose work I frequently read and quote, summarized these references to righteousness this way. We are to hunger and thirst after a truly Christian lifestyle that changes us from the inside out so that we no longer seek the praise of others but seek God's approval about everything else, above everything else. When theologians break down the concept of righteousness, there are two broad themes that tend to emerge. And I'm trying to do this simply because I think they're important. The first is called imputed righteousness. This is the righteousness by God to one who is hungry and thirsty for his saving work in our lives. This is the righteousness that God credits to your spiritual account. It occurs when you place your faith and trust in the Lord and you take him at his handshake deal, that if you put your faith in him, then he will act and he will carry through his part of the promise. You think of uh, Abram in Genesis 15:6. It's the first time that we discover this principle. It says, Abram believed the Lord and he, the Lord, credited it to him as righteousness. So in other words, Abram believed the promise of God when, when God said, Abram, I want you to leave your home you're 75 years old. I want you to travel to a different land. I'll tell you when you get there. And when you get there, I'm going to give all the land that you see to your descendants. Oh, but by the way, you're going to live the rest of your life in tents. Because you'll never own anything. And Abram says, okay, I'll go. And it says, Abram believed the Lord in exchange for that faith decision by Abram. God credited his spiritual account with not Abram's righteousness, with God's own righteousness, which is ultimately what, what satisfies. That's where we see the start of this. I want you to think of imputed righteousness as a righteousness that comes down on us. It's not our own. It's not self-righteousness. It's righteousness from on high where God gives us the very thing that he demands of us. Does that make sense? All right, here's the second kind. It's called imparted righteousness. This results from our saving come-to-Jesus experiences and compels us to live out our commitment to the Lord 
and to his ways in this world. So rather than righteousness that comes down, this is righteousness that goes out. This is compelling our outward actions. First, it's a desire to live up to the high calling that he has given us as children of God, where we say we're no longer wrestling with whether whether we will believe that we're children of God. Now we are acting as children of God, as if this is his world, and so we're going to act as his children and with his authority in life. Second, it is a craving in your soul toward personal holiness that makes our own sinfulness repellent. It's a craving. It's a craving to be right with God and to have our lives more and more align with his will for us so that we begin to not only desire this but to act toward that desire. Third, it is a calling to address the broken systems of this world, bringing them more and more into alignment with what is right, true, and fair, and just in the eyes of God. And that's hard. So it's a desire, it's a craving, it's a calling. Two kinds of righteousness. One that God gives us and comes down on us by faith. The other that goes out as we act like children of God in this universe. My friend Ruth Barton wrote of her experience about growing up in a Christian home and this concept of righteousness. She said, I was taught that once Jesus comes into your heart, he will satisfy everything once and for all. This has not been my experience, she adds. So I am grateful for this beatitude to seekers, people like me who are baffled by the ongoing presence of hunger and thirst in the midst of their spiritual pilgrimage. I dare say that the longer you and I walk with Jesus, the longer you and I grow in our faith, there will be different seasons where there are different kinds of a spiritual hunger and thirst that he produces in us. The first spiritual hunger he he gives us is for more of him. For more of God, to know God, to know his truth, to be right with God rather than afraid of God or running away from God. But along the way, he gives us a greater and greater sense of spiritual hunger and thirst to act like his people in the midst of this world. It's the righteousness that goes out from us. Here's the big idea for this morning. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness is a desire a craving, and a calling to bring ourselves in every aspect of our lives into alignment with the heart of God. It's a desire, a craving, and a calling to bring ourselves first and then every aspect of our lives into alignment with the heart of God. Okay, here's the third question. And I know we're, we're tackling a big, huge topic today. What does it mean to be filled Because he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And the promise is, they will be filled. I spent a lot of time this week trying to think about what does it mean when we are filled with that sense of being right with God and of having the righteousness of God flow through us. Here's what I came up with this week. First, it is the recognition that Jesus is enough. Think of the woman who met Jesus by that well in Sychar that's described in John chapter 4. In her own way, she'd been searching for more. She had either gone through several divorces or been passed around by abusive man after abusive man. And when Jesus told her about this water that he could give that brings eternal life, she said to Jesus, not understanding even what he's talking about yet, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. 
In other words, she said, what you're describing, I've, I've got to have this. This is totally unlike my life so far. And then he described a little bit more, and she ended up leaving her water jar there by the well and ran off to tell all of her friends. And so she told her neighbors, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. I would say in parentheses, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And then she asked, could this be the Messiah? Here's the point. When you and I are drawn to Jesus and we experience Jesus in a way that satisfies the inward cravings of the soul, there's no way that we can hold that in. Sooner or later, that comes spilling out and you have to tell other people what you have found because we know so many other people who are dry and thirsty and hungry and who are looking for something that lasts and something that satisfies. And when you find it, it's almost just natural to say, you've got to come with me. You've, you've got to find this. I, I wish I could en enter you into the same kind of experiences that I've been having because this is the most satisfying type of thing I've experienced yet in life. I think this is of God. So this kind of filling is the recognition that Jesus is enough. It is also the cry that, that emanates from us at different times when we say, only Jesus. At the end of John chapter 6, there's a scene where it says that many who were beginning to be known as disciples of Jesus turned back and no longer followed him. Do you realize there are times when the Bible says that there are people who were known as disciples who left the way, rejected Jesus, and no longer followed him? I'm not sure what to do with that, but it's there. It happens. We shouldn't be shocked by that. It's written about in John chapter 6, verses 66 to 69. Jesus, moved by walk, watching people walk away, then turns toward the original band of disciples, the 12, and he says, you do not want to leave me too, do you? What a profound moment. And then Peter speaks up for the group. And he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. You see what he's saying? Where are we going to go? There's nobody else who can point us to God like you can point us. There's nobody else who has these words that cause eternal life to well up inside of us. We've tasted this. Where are we going to go? You are the only one. They are saying, in a nutshell, only Jesus can provide this for us. Third, it is the conviction to stand with Jesus. In John chapter 9, there's this amazing scene where there's a man who had been born blind, has his sight given to him, not restored to him because he never had it, given to him in the first place. Jesus puts mud on the man's eyes, tells him to go wash, and when he washes, he can see. And it causes this huge uh, discussion a controversy, if you will, that's happening outside the temple in Jerusalem because the opponents of Jesus are absolutely convinced that, that this man had to be faking it because if Jesus healed this man in this way, it had to be a sign that Jesus was from God. And there's no way that they wanted to recognize Jesus as being the Son of God. So the religious leaders oppose this man and they threaten to kick him out of the temple. That's not, a big that's not a small deal. That's a big deal. Because temple life was everything for a Jewish person in the first century. That means never being able to go to worship, being cut off from all the rest of the people, being cut off from your own family. It was a huge deal. But nonetheless, his response is beautiful. 
This is what he says. Now, this is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. So here's this uneducated guy who's been a beggar on the streets for his entire life because he's been blind and unable to fend for himself. And in that moment, knowing that he's experienced the changing work of Christ in his life, he takes his stand against those who have power and authority and who are opposing Jesus in that moment and says, you guys can say whatever you want. I know what I've experienced. And this is the guy whose story led to amazing grace. Once I was blind, but now I see. I don't need anybody to uh, build up stronger arguments. I don't need an army behind me. I may be the only one here, but I'll stand with Jesus because he's brought this power and change into my life. So in the same way, being filled with the righteousness of God causes us to have the conviction to stand with Jesus where we know that we've experienced his truth, his power, his grace, his life-changing ability. And then last, it is the calling to live for Jesus. These are the words of Paul in Philippians chapter 1. Paul was writing Philippians from house arrest. We went through this whole series last year on the letter to the Philippian church. And he says, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or death. And then he says this great line, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. These are the words of the Apostle Paul as he considered that Rome could give him the death penalty. He'd appealed his case to the Roman authorities. But one doesn't have to be an apostle to have that kind of faith. Every time you pray, on earth as it is in heaven... You are calling for the values of heaven to be worked out in our society here and now. When you share with someone else why your hope is in Jesus as our Redeemer, you are expressing one of the core values of the kingdom of heaven here on earth. When we insist that people of all races are our brothers and sisters, and when we insist on equal treatment, equal respect, equal dignity, you are living by the values of heaven right now. When you advocate for equal justice for those who are treated unfairly by corrupted systems, you are demonstrating that everyone matters to God and you are longing for the world to look like what God has promised somewhere off in the future. Christians have this ache. It's the hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God, not just for ourselves in our, our need for salvation, but also that the world around us would begin to reflect the power and the authority of Jesus in the way that we live. And it starts with us. When we pray for our enemies instead of trying to destroy them, we acknowledge that the gospel matters more than our own short-term success. We're looking for the long-road impact of what God is going to do. So all of these are countercultural values that come from the words of Jesus. And it's this calling to live for him now. So let me close with this thought. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness is a desire, a craving, and a calling to bring ourselves in every aspect of our lives into alignment with the heart of God. Father God, cause this hunger and thirst 
to fall on those who need to put their faith and trust in you. For the first time or in a way of renewal, whether they're here in the room or they're watching online, cause this hunger and thirst to fall on us when we see some aspects of this world that are broken and we're invited to do something about it or to absolutely break us to the point where we begin to change some of the way that we use our time and our resources so that we dare to try and make a difference and make at least one small corner of this world look like Jesus has been here already. Give us a hunger and thirst for you above all else. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.